0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 27th, 2022, a Tuesday, pub day for the publishing industry. New books are out today. Uh, we tend to have a fairly conventional perhaps Whiggist version of history when it comes to women. We understand that women were silenced for many generations, many centuries, perhaps two centuries in the American context. And then in the 1960s and 70s, they acquired a voice. And um, some people might suggest they haven't stopped talking since or they haven't stopped shouting. But that narrative is, of course, like all conventional narratives, wrong. It leaves out. Some particularly important and influential and loud voices, uh, female voices, that have shaped America. One of those voices um, is that of a woman called Elsie Robinson, who, uh, according to the New York Times uh, review, at least today, is the most popular writer you've never heard of. You've heard of her now, though, because there's a new book. It's out today. It's called Listen World. How the Intrepid Elsie Robinson Became America's Most Red Woman. And it's authored by Julia Shears and Alison Gilbert. Uh, And I'm thrilled that Alison is joining us. Uh, I'm in New York today, and she's just to the north in Westchester County. Alison, congratulations on the book.
1: Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much.
0: So tell me about this, this Elsie Robinson. Like everybody else, I have to admit, of course, I hadn't heard of her. Who was she and how did you discover her?
1: Well, you're in great company because I had never heard of her either before this journey began. She became uh, the highest paid writer in the entire William Randolph Hearst media empire. Uh, She wrote continuously more than 9,000 columns and essays and articles um, over the course of her incredible career which for Hearst began in 1924 and stretched to her death in 1956
0: and yeah I mean I even you can even find um, uh, from the New York Times uh, an obituary in September 1956 of Elsie Robinson columnist who died
1: and she was a remarkable, um, she was very dexterous. She wrote about many topics. You know, today we have many writers who have their lane. They write about medicine or medical advances, or you have writers that, you know, talk about terrorism and war. Uh, she covered it all from capitalism and capital punishment to racism or anti-Semitism to feminism uh, and gender inequality, there really wasn't an urgent nor timely topic that she did not uh, cover.
0: How did she begin? Uh, her story is is qu- quite remarkable. Uh, you, you and I, I was joking earlier, I said, well, it's not an entirely happy story. And you push back saying, well, it is. But her life wasn't entirely happy, was it?
1: Well, I mean, is anyone's life entirely happy? No, I think. Some more
0: than others. I mean, she, she had some, I mean, my understanding, at least, is some particularly dark moments. I mean, she was very unhappily married.
1: She was unhappily married, she was dirt poor, she had no connections whatsoever. When she was aspiring to be a writer, it wasn't like she could lean on friends and family to kind of give her a boost. And so I think for those reasons alone, Her story is so relatable because she had this fire. She wanted something bigger in her life. She wanted more, yet she had no contacts, no ability to do it other than relying on her own skill set, which was enormous, her own moxie and her own grit. And so she noticed, and she didn't wait, by the way, for anyone to come knocking on her door to say We've been waiting for you, Elsie Robinson. No, of course that didn't happen. What she saw back in 1918 was that the Oakland Tribune, an incredibly popular paper in the San Francisco Bay Area, did not have a children's section. Um, she was a mom, she had a son, she knew a sick she son,
0: right? I mean, and a that very, was very
1: sick, yes. Of
0: Be- before we get into the Oakland story, um, I'm, I almost called you Elsie, Allison. That would have been terrible, right? Mm-hmm. Well, probably not so bad. You would have been happy about that. Um, explain how she got to California, because that's a remarkable story, too.
1: Well, the interesting thing is about Elsie Robinson is that she found herself in a bit of an emotional hole, and she clawed her way out in a time where doing so was really novel. And what I mean by that is in 1912, she had had enough of being married to a man that she felt um, the institution of marriage, and him in particular, was just this weight. And she wanted to be free and to liberate herself, what she found to be incredibly constraining. You know, those times, women really had very limited Opportunities. Yeah, right? I mean, she you
0: was were... um, she was a sort of Madame Bovary in a sense. She married an older, wealthy man who was really miserable and treated her awfully, right?
1: I think she just found it to be suffocating, and she wanted a bigger, richer life for herself, and so she decided uh, to leave and to take her sickly son, as you rightly described. With her and embarked on this life as a single mother, where at the time that was really um, something that society tried endlessly to shame women, that if you were a single mother, that was something to be embarrassed by, to hide from. You know, women were so afraid to admit that they were a single mother, they would say that their husbands died and they would pretend that they were widows. I mean, this was not easy, but yet she was dying, wanting, craving uh, this richer life for herself.
0: So she's in the Bay Area and she has this stint, which is astonishing as a, as a gold miner, um, a physical gold miner. She was uh, down in the mines uh, and then she decides or perhaps she always knew that she wanted to be a writer. So she shows up at the o- Oakland Tribune. So back to that story, uh, uh, Allison
1: yeah so she spent three years in the gold mines in the sierra nevada as you just rightfully said she had no other means of supporting herself and her son so 600 feet below the surface of the earth elsie robinson was a gold miner the only woman in a sea of men to try to make ends meet and at night when her shifts were over after walking four miles out to the mine working an entire day, walking four miles back to her cabin, it was at night that she practiced the craft of writing and started submitting with some measure of success to publications across the country. Then in 1918, she noticed that the Oakland Tribune did not have a children's section. And she knew she had talent as a writer for children and as an illustrator, because she had drawn pictures and stories for her son because there was very little entertainment for him when they were in the gold mines, and she convinced the editor of the Oakland Tribune to give her a shot, and the rest was just a dramatic rise to fame.
0: And then the Oakland Tribune—this was a Hearst paper, was it?
1: The Oakland Tribune, no.
0: Who owned it? I mean, who—who who was the the editor who gave her her opportunity?
1: Oh, my gosh, this is a great story. So there's this incredible editor, Leo Levy. You guys can Google him. Uh, He was this wonderful um, editor who really had this um, paper in his fists. He had been there for so long. He was hard nosed. And Elsie saw there being this opportunity, this window to crack open and make herself known. So as she describes that meeting, he was hard to convince. You know, how do you convince someone to give it a shot? And she showed him, she brought with her examples of her work. And he was like, you know what? There's something to this stuff. How about we give it a shot? And so that begot Elsie's career at the Oakland Tribune and within one year. So by the time 1919 rolled around, she got an entire supplement in the paper, a five page, it was eight pages actually. Let me, I want to, I don't want to get myself wrong. It was eight pages. It was called aunt Elsie's magazine and she was aunt Elsie and her popularity exploded. There were parades that were held in her name live shows that were put on throughout the bay area i mean thousands of kids joined aunt elsie clubs throughout california it just took off
0: describe her her style what kind of writer was she and did did her journalistic career did that fulfill her longing to write was Most people, when they think of themselves as writers, want to write great novels, they don't necessarily think of themselves as syndicated newspaper columnists.
1: I don't know. I would push back on you with that. I think that for women to have a voice, to reach tens of thousands of people across the country, to have what you believe uh, to look around in your world and to write your truth and to try to convince other people to expand their viewpoints, I think is to some people a very high calling. I know it would appeal to many, let's say, bloggers today, right? Bloggers.
0: Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right, actually. I think it was a, an unfair comment yeah. on my part, probably sort of placing all women as if they're Jane Austen or something, which is, of course rather absurd (laughs) so what did she write about though was it advice was it practical was it political was it focused on women was she writing as a woman to women or was she writing to both men and women
1: so it's an evolving structure so when she began uh she was very much pigeonholed as many women writers were of that day. And I think there could be an argument in some cases still are, of course, not to the extent that it was at all, but she of course wrote about family and motherhood and parenting in the beginning and household and how to take care of the home. And all that is how she kind of got her foot in the door. And then the pivot began. Then she started seeing that she could claw her way higher up that ladder by taking on broader subjects. And William Randolph Hearst, who was the head, the multimillionaire head of the company, knew her worth, knew how she was writing short sentences Sometimes all caps that drive, of course, some people crazy today in you know, texts or what have you, but all caps, exclamation points to emphasize her points of view. But she took on topics that were meant to, you know, make men want to engage and be a part of the conversation. And so she was very successful. And I think what she did that was so remarkable is she fought directly to get paid what she was worth, she knew. She was bringing in eyeballs to the paper. She knew what her value was to the organization, and she had no trouble telling telling William Randolph Hearst directly um, what she deserved. And I find that to be incredibly refreshing, especially going back, let's say, to the 1940s.
0: Uh, Your Your subtitle of the book is How the Intrepid Elsie Robinson Became America's Most Read Woman. But as the Times Review said, the most popular writer you've never heard of, I hadn't heard of her. Alison, you concur. You said you hadn't heard of her. Why was she not known if she was such a popular writer? Did she not sort of push her brand? Was her brand ignored or was sort of branding writers, perhaps in the first part of the 20th century, just not the thing to do?
1: So, I would say what she did then has very little bearing on what we now know today. And I'll explain what I mean by that. She was very careful about her brand. She was Aunt Elsie, and that brand endured. She died in 1956, and the last Aunt Elsie letter column uh, in the Oakland Tribune went all the way until 1970. And so, She endured. Now, the question is, how come we don't know the name Elsie Robinson today? And I have many theories about that. And we talk about many of them inside the book Listen World. But here's one. The National Women's History Museum has done an exhaustive study about how students in U.S. public schools are taught American history and in social studies classrooms, kindergarten through 12th grade, of all historical figures that are taught, only 24% are women. So if you're a student and you're not being taught about women, it's hard to know about women. And so I feel like there's a deeper reason entrenched in how we learn the subjects that are taught and who we are learning about that contributes to a steady erasure of women over time.
0: So in that sense, your book is a polemic. It's a political statement pushing back, reminding your readers, and particularly women, of of the prominent role of somebody like Elsie Robinson in, in, in the America of the first 60, 50, 60 years of the 20th century.
1: I think women are too frequently overlooked. I think if you go back to that National Women's History Museum reporting, again, they are the experts on this, not me. So I borrow liberally from their research. What they have found is that the way we are taught history in many experts' point of view is doggedly masculine. And what that means is that if you're being taught history through the lens of war, well, war has to do, of course, with politics or economics or military maneuvers or land partitioning. There's a story of war that gets told, right? Dates leaders in a military sense, in a political sense, in an economic sense, in land ownership sense. So if that's your prism by which you tell history, that excludes women who have presented themselves as being incredibly influential, but in areas where they have been allowed to have their voice and their say. So whether or not that's journalism or arts or immigration reform or labor and civil rights, these are pockets where women have been most exceptional, but they're not typically what gets taught as readily in the U S public school system. So that's what they mean by the curriculum standards are doggedly masculine. And so if we want to get to that root of the problem, I think we will soon then learn more histories of more women who are similar to Elsie Robinson.
0: Right. And in fact, um, The New York Times review today uh, ends on that note, wondering how many other women with equally compelling tales have been lost to history. I'm sure there'll be many books of this kind. Um, uh, Your manifesto clearly has a a, a feminist element, Um, Alison. What about Elsie Robinson herself? Um, This is a term, of course, deeply controversial, particularly these days, but Was she a feminist? Was she interested in feminist issues? Well,
1: it's interesting that you bring that up. It is a very exciting uh, thing to talk about, which is that she would never in a million years call herself a feminist because back in her day, that was the equivalent of being a man-hater. So the terminology might sound... According to
0: who? The, The popular culture?
1: Yes, exactly. And so she would never consider herself a man hater, which is what that term meant in her point of view back in her day. But her points of view were incredibly powerful when it came to women's empowerment. In fact, we haven't touched on this yet. You know, she was somewhat of a unicorn. Um, She not only wrote her column which is called Listen World, which is how we got the name of the book, Listen World. That was the name of her column. But she also drew her own accompanying political and editorial cartoons. And in those cartoons, wow, some of them are quite provocative when it comes to a feminist perspective. And this is going back, you know, in the early 1920s. I mean, this is decades or more than a decade before, let's say, Gloria Steinem was even born. And so here is a writer who took on these issues way early, who really hasn't been given her due, um, which, you know, Julia Shears, my co-author, and I are so excited to make sure people know um, about Elsie Robinson, can understand her point of view and read her columns, not fully, right? We don't just reprint her columns, but we take the essence, her best words, and we put them into the book.
0: What about her politics, um, Alison? You've suggested that um, she was a political writer. She was writing at a remarkable moment in American and world history, uh, firstly in the 20s, then the collapse Uh the rise of fascism, the New Deal, the Second World War. Was she a big fan, for example, of FDR?
1: Well, you know what I want, where I was going when you were talking is that I wanted to talk about, you were talking about politics, and then you mentioned, you know, fascism, and then my mind goes to World War II and Hitler. And so I want to talk about that, because that's where my mind went. Um, America was really um, put to the mat, when it came for its slow response to um, getting involved uh, in World War Two, defending the Jews, going into Germany, liberating the concentration camps. And you asked me about politics. What I found so remarkable about some of Elsie Robinson's writing in her Listen World columns was how often and how steadily she advocated on behalf of Jews. Um, I found that to be remarkable, and not just for the US to get involved in World War II, but also what was happening domestically the incredible rise of anti Semitism in the United States, and how it was incumbent upon Americans to treat Jews um, with more kindness, with more understanding, uh, and to just Flatten out anti-Semitism that she saw uh, really percolating up across the country. And so to me, that was a great achievement she had on the political front.
0: What about on the race front? It's hard now to think of anything in American history without thinking about race. I mean, she was living in California, but this was still a a Jim Crow America. Uh, How interested or focused or disturbed was she by the profound inequalities of the America of the first half of the the 20th century, even in California, but of course, particularly um, in the South.
1: I find that to be also remarkable. She took on the Daughters of the American Revolution when they excluded um, an incredibly popular uh, singer, the baritone singer, uh, from a Washington, D.C. event just because of the color of his skin. She took them to task publicly, wrote about it. And so to me, the fact that she was willing to devote column copy inches of newsprint to making sure um, even the most famous were cheated equitably um, was quite remarkable. And I would say this too, she also took on, we mentioned before, capital punishment. And still to that day, that could resonate because I feel that there's been so much we've been talking about, but the unequal um, treatment, the kind of outpouring of willingness for people to really dig into these days about who is actually being uh prosecuted who is actually being put to death what are the racial implications of those choices these are still um topics that we are talking about today and she devoted columns and political cartoons to talking about capital punishment and howing that it was just Ruining not just the lives, clearly, of the person being put to death and killing that person, but the ripple effects. That how does it help families who are torn apart by capital punishment to raise their children with fewer resources if that parent has been executed? Um, So the financial implications, the social emotional implications, you're right. She talked about issues that are urgent still today.
0: You're obviously a great fan of uh, of Elsie. Of, of You've read, I'm guessing, probably all her columns. You've done a great deal of research. You're probably more familiar with her than anybody. Did you read anything that disturbed you? You thought, oh, my God, Elsie, you shouldn't have written that.
1: Um, you're, that's a great question. We actually put our manuscript through a review uh, to make sure that some of her language, how it would land today. um, I think in 2022, we are very aware of our blind spots. And there were some of her editorial cartoons that needed to have some context written about them for readers in this day and age you know the book comes out today so we needed to provide some context historically about why she may have chosen certain words of her time And then you know sometimes you could quote, you be a
0: bit more explicit i mean what, what exactly are you talking about
1: yeah definitely so for example um she wrote about getting dressed as a woman of the Victoria era in her corsets and how that was really confining. And she talked about how that was the opposite of running around like a naked savage. And to us in 2022, there is no right way of drawing a comparison like that. That's a false comparison to say that you wanted to do X to avoid being like a naked savage. There's only one reference point that she is making and that is offensive, Um, not just to readers of color, but to any reader today. And so we took great pains to either strip that out of the manuscript if we thought that it wasn't going to be relevant to her point of view, making a note of that in the end notes, you know, to be very, very clear, or providing that context. Because as authors, we have the wonderful power to providing this wonderful wrapping around certain quotes to make sure a reader understands that we're not just letting her get a free pass, that some of her words can be um, looked at with a little bit more of a magnifying glass. And what about her opinions? I I take that
0: point, but everyone's prisoner of their times. What about her opinions? Was there stuff you read you thought, you're wrong on that one, Elsie?
1: You know, it's interesting. When I think about Elsie overall, you had asked me a couple of times how I found out about her. Well, I only found out about her because my mother died. Um, I was going through my mother's belongings after she passed away, and I discovered a piece of paper that fluttered out of a book, and it was a poem written by someone named Elsie Robinson, and I had to find out who she was, and that's what gave me the push uh, to go research Elsie Robinson's story over the past, you know, really 11 years, And so, in doing that, her opinions that I came across, they landed for me in a very maternal way. That in some ways, I found her advice and guidance to be what I was personally longing for. Um, My mom found a mother
0: or a surrogate mother.
1: Yeah, Elsie was very tough love. And I know you've read the book, you've asked me such great questions. Elsie uh, was not very warm and fuzzy. She was very tough love and in some ways so was my mother. Yeah, she so El- it.
0: Very, um, yeah, she's not someone you want to disappoint. Um, a couple <laughs> of final questions, uh, Alison. Um, she looks tough, she was tough. She was well-read, she was well-paid, she was popular. Did she ever have fights with her editors? You know, uh, Leo Levy gave her first opportunity at the Oakland Tribune. But I'm guessing that there were times where she and her editors or the owners of the newspapers wouldn't see eye to eye.
1: Well, we actually, my co-author and I, Julia Shears, we have uncovered uh, some incredible documentation that nobody else has found before where we have actual correspondence between her and her editors, including William Randolph Hearst, where she does want to write uh, in a certain direction. And she's like, listen, take it or leave it this is my point of view. I'm a columnist. Print it, don't print it. This is my truth. And I find that to be a point of view, a stance that comes from incredible fortitude and incredible self-confidence. And William Randolph Hearst, knew that he had to accommodate Elsie Robinson in nearly every way. She was his most popular writer. She was in his papers all across the country. She had more than 20 million readers nationwide. And just to put that number into perspective, by the way, right now, that is double the number of current subscribers to the New York Times and with a much smaller population, with fewer outlets to get the news. So she had America's attention. And so when she did go to bat for herself, her editors listened.
0: Take that, the New York Times. Uh, Alison, the subtitle of your book is America's Most Read Woman, but it sounds to me like she was America's Most Read Person. Were there any men who were better? Who were more read by her than her than Al uh, than than um, than um, Elsie?
1: Well, that's a really good question. In terms of the women's, we went to do the research about women columnists, and there was a lot of documentation about her in that day and how she was paid in relevance to other women journalists of that time. In fact. Arthur Brisbane, who is a very popular, famous name still at the New York Times, you can go back and Google him. He was the highest paid writer who was a man. And when Mm -hmm. he helped bring Elsie Robinson into the Hearst universe in 1924, the highest paid man made her the highest paid woman writer. So Hearst paid a lot to his writers, and it was because of Arthur Brisbane who was really William Randolph's Hearst, you know, they were in lockstep. Uh, that is where that came from. So Arthur Brisbane would be the one that I would point out.
0: Well, uh, the woman who took on William Randolph Hearst, Citizen Kane himself and won. Right. Uh, <laughs> wonderful story, wonderful book. Uh, I think it's going to be a bestseller. Listen World by uh, Julia Shears and my guest, Alison Gilbert. There's also a wonderful, uh, a wonderful um Website uh, which Alison is hosting, um, including Elsie uh, Robinson uh, Robinson's m- uh, writing manifesto, a happiness manifesto, her top ten quotes, and her five top quotes for living your best life. Let's end. Um, let's end Alison with uh, with one. Elsie Robinson quote. What's your favorite quote of hers? What did she say or write that you should stick in all of our memories?
1: I'm going to paraphrase, but I really do love the quote she has about happiness, that it must be fought for, it must be sought, and it must be achieved. Because I feel that sometimes when we are depressed or feeling that we just can't go on, that we feel like happiness should be coming back to us like a sudden miracle. And she diffuses that expectation and she talks about our ownership of happiness. And I think that proactivity approach of making yourself happy is one of the greatest tough love pieces of advice that Elsie Robinson um, offers. And of course we um, reflect that in Listen World.
0: Well, That's great stuff. Congratulations again, uh, Alison. What else are you reading? Um, everyone I now I'm sure after this conversation, are, are going to go out and buy Listen World. But w- what are the other books um, that, are, that you've been enjoying recently?
1: Well, I brought a copy because I wanted to show you. Is that okay if I show it?
0: Of course. It? Well, I can't tell you what to do, Alison.
1: So this book is a thick, thick biography. It's called Madam, It's by an incredible writer. Can you see her name? Debbie Applegate. Yes. She won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, It's incredible. And I feel like Elsie and perhaps Polly Adler, who is the subject of Madam, you know, might have been friends back in the 1920s. Both were women who kind of worked on uh, the edges of society in some ways. Polly certainly uh, as a madam more than Elsie, but they were both women who owned their own destinies. And I, um, I appreciate that. And the other book is another uh, work that's coming out actually today. Friends of mine uh, who run the website, What's Your Grief, have their book, What's Your Grief, that's also on the same pub day today. And I would say go get their book too. It's remarkable. I've read it. I got an early copy and I just love it.